0: Amen amen well thank you thank you well it is a a joy and a privilege to to be able to preach um God's word today um i just want to reiterate <clears throat> what my wife said and um, just a few things on, on on the screen that Pastor Eric said. We we are sad at this, yet at the same time we are hopeful um, that the Lord will continue to restore them, continue to restore other people. And I, I just want to reiterate: let's continue to pray, and let's continue to wear our mask and social distance, um, and and yeah, and just be good neighbors to one another um, in this. In this season, if this is your first time here at the Brook, I just want to say welcome. I'm glad that you're here today. Um, It's no coincidence that you're here. I often say I hope and pray that you would sense God's love for you today. The moment that you stepped in, um, I pray that you would that you felt God's love today. We're going to be doing a study through the letter of Romans. We're going through this series called Doctrine That Dances. Doctrine is a big word that means. Belief, and we say doctrine that dances because we want to see doctrine lived out. We want to see doctrine move in our real lives. Okay, that's why we call it doctrine that dances. And one thing you should know about me is that I actually grew up in Florida. Right now I'm 31 years old, but I moved to Chicago when I was 19 years old in 2008. <clears throat> so I often say I grew up in Florida. But Chicago made me an adult, okay? And throughout the years of my time living here, I've learned that belonging to something legitimately has some key markers. And I've learned this through a few conversations that I've had with a few close friends. Uh, Some of my friends for years, or for the last few years, have debated on whether or not I can consider myself an adopted son of Chicago. Now, I want to be very clear. I'm not saying a native son of Chicago. I said an adopted son of Chicago. I don't want to offend anybody here from Chicago. In other words, the debate has been, what are the signs that Jeremy has his Chicago card? What are those signs? And the debate is because of a few things. And I want to put these these few attributes, if you will, these qualities that I've, or this resume that I've been able to acquire over the past almost 13 years here in Chicago. And I want you to debate in your mind whether or not I could have my Chicago card. You ready for this? So here's the debate. They say, I can be an adopted son of Chicago because I've renounced my Florida ID and now I have an Illinois ID, okay, okay? Also, I've endured a few snowpocalypses over the course of a few years. Now hold up, hold up, hold up. You gotta understand. I not only have endured the snow apocalypses, I've also taken the CTA everywhere with no car during those snow All right? So they're like, man, that's that's kinda that's kind of Chicago-like. Also, I accept that Deep Dish is only for special events. I'm sorry to all the people online watching that are not from Chicago. Deep Dish is only for special events. Thin Crust is the go-to, and it's cut in squares, not slices. Sorry, New York City. Right? That's really Chicago, right? All right. <clears throat> I've also learned that to direct others and to be directed, you need if, if you're going to be adopted in Chicago, you have to go by cross streets, not specific addresses. You follow me? All right? So people will be like, hey, where are you going? I'm going to Central and Belmont. A Chicagoan usually knows, okay, I know where this person's going. I know what store they're going. That's usually how you direct one another. And finally, I've learned that highways are called the Dan Ryan and the Kennedy. All right. So because of these different things that I've been able to walk through over 13 years, my friends debate, man, does Jeremy have his Chicago card as an adopted son. And we go back and forth, and I mean, I don't go back and forth, I, would, I wouldn't call myself that, unless somebody called me that. But it's interesting to see that debate going on. But as I thought about this, I thought about belonging and debating whether or not somebody belongs. There, there's more fierce debates going on in our country, in our society, and potentially in our hearts. And the text today that we're going to read in a second actually talks about a debate that the Christian deals with at one point or another. Or maybe you grew up in church. You grew up going to church since a child and you're wondering this debate. And the debate is this. What makes a legitimate child of God? What makes somebody a Christian? And how can they be sure of that? Some political pundits and some politicians say to be a Christian means that you'll vote Republican. Others say to vote for the current president is against the word of God, and how could any Christian even do that? Others might think, man, I've been going to church, I I look pretty good, I'm you know, I read my Bible every day. I I, I go to worship, and um, you know, like I'm I'm just a regular dude. I'm not into some big scandal. I think I'm a Christian. I got my college degree. I got my master's degree. You know, I I'm I'm a good Christian. So the question on the floor is: What makes a Christian legitimate? Or in other words, what makes someone? a child of God, and as I've kind of thought through some of these questions, I've noticed that most, if any, that I've talked to in recent days neglect one thing, political pundits um, on TV neglect one thing that the Bible is clear about that every Christian has, and is this, many neglect the evidence of the Holy Spirit in someone's lives. I couldn't believe it. I've been listening to CNN, uh, uh, Fox, and I'm like, man, all these people could talk about what it means to be a Christian or what authenticates you as a Christian, but none of them have talked about the Holy Spirit. But the word of God does. In the Bible, our ultimate source of truth and authority affirms that there's one God. And the Bible also teaches that God is three persons. God the Father, God the Son, who's Jesus Christ, and God the Holy Spirit. And each person is God, yet they are one. Theologically, we call this the Trinity. And the reason why it's important to note the Trinity or what the Trinity is, because what we believe about God affects how we live on a daily basis. So meaning, if you have a misconception about who God is, you'll probably have a misconception about who you are and how you should live. So we need to understand who God is according to what the Word of God says. But today, our text focuses on the divine person of the Holy Spirit. And I want to be very clear. The Holy Spirit is a divine person. The Holy Spirit is not a force. The Holy Spirit is not karma. The Holy Spirit is not an energy. The Holy Spirit is not a vibe. The Holy Spirit biblically is a person, a divine person. Yeah. That interacts with us on a daily basis if you are a child of God. So I want to speak from this thought, from this big idea, and it's this. God's children have the evidence of the Holy Spirit's work. I'm going to say that again. God's children have the evidence of the Holy Spirit's work. So if you want to know if you are a child of God, we need to see is there evidence in your life and in my life of the Holy Spirit's work. But what does that work look like? And I want you to look at the text. The text that we're about to read it talks about a planted desire from the Holy Spirit, a divine prompting, and a divine positioning. So I'm going to ask you to turn your Bible to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, and we're going to look at verses 12 through 17. And if you're able to, please rise to your feet. Romans chapter 8 verses 12 through 17, talking about the evidence of the Holy Spirit. Church family, are you with me? Yes. Online, type of yeah. <laughs> and I'm going to look at it later. No, I'm just playing. <laughs> Romans chapter 8, verse 12 through 17. The Holy Spirit says this through the writer Paul. He says, So then, brothers, we are debtors, adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided, provided, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. God bless the reading of his word. You may take your seats. We're going to talk about the evidence of the Holy Spirit. Um, I don't know what you heard. I don't know what you came with in regards to the Holy Spirit, but the word of God is clear for us today. And And the first thing, the that I want to talk about is a planted desire that the Holy Spirit gives to every child of God. So the evidence number one that you know that you are a child of God is if the Holy Spirit plants the desire to kill corrupted habits. The Holy Spirit plants the desire for you to kill corrupted habits. Now notice I didn't say that you are perfect the moment you become a child of God. In the word of God, what we see in verse 12 is that God's children owe their allegiance to the Holy Spirit, not to our corrupted uh, bodies and desires. Look at verse 12. It says, we are debtors. You see that? We are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. What's what's the flesh in this context? In this context, uh, the flesh is our old nature that is is predisposed, is inclined to, to live corrupted and disobey God. That's what the flesh is. And here he says, we're no longer debtors. We're no longer obligated to live according to those inclinations if we are children of God. And also in verse 13, I want to move through this. If God's children, what we see, if God's children align to the Holy Spirit, they will experience abundant life. I'm going to read verse 13 for you one more time. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if, you, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It's an interesting statement that he says here. Uh, I, want, I want to make a note. The Bible teaches overall that a relationship with God as children comes through our trust in Jesus Christ. It's not by what you do, it's not about what you did, it's not about what you will do, it's about your trust. The moment that you believe and trust that Jesus died and resurrected for your sins, God the Father declares you as his son or his daughter and you're part of God's kingdom. Okay, you follow me? Okay, I'll preach it to myself if I need to. The moment we believe in Jesus Christ is the moment that we are granted eternal life, okay? But here's the thing. In verse 11, if you were to read that, you would see that, that Paul, through, uh, through the Holy Spirit, or, yeah, or, yeah, Paul through the Holy Spirit is, say, he says, we have eternal life. We will have a resurrected life when we die physically. But here in this context, in this pericope or this passage, this is kind of the implication, so the kind of what if. Okay, so if we have eternal life, what does that mean for me now? That's why he starts with, we are no longer debtors, we're no longer obligated to the flesh. So why does he say at this point in time that we will have a life if we put to death the, the, the deeds of the body? That kind of sounds counterintuitive. He, Paul just said we have eternal life, yet he says we will have a life if we put to death the deeds of the body. Do we have eternal life or do we still got to work to have eternal life? What is it? Is it trust or do we got to work to get a relationship with, with Christ? Well, here in this context, what he's trying to say, again, he's talking about the difference it makes that we have eternal life. He's talking about the abundant life that children of God can experience here in the now as we walk toward eternal life. You follow me? So, what is eternal life, though? I mean, what is abundant life? Eternal life means you'll be connected with God forever, free of sin. But abundant life now, what does that look like? It looks like a life that is submitted to God to the degree that you avoid sin so that you're no longer corrupted morally further. So it's a life where you continue to obey God in such a way that God begins to restore your brokenness and you live into God's wholeness. That You live a life that's connected with God, that loves God, that you sense God's presence. And doesn't mean that you're, you're perfect. Does it doesn't mean that you don't have sin present in you. But it means that you have a life that is submitted, submitted to God in such a way that you don't corrupt your life any further. And you're free from the different frustrations that come with sin. In this, in this context, he calls that death. He calls that death. It's a spiritual symptom. It's, It's a spiritual state, death in this context. So again, abundant life is a life free from further moral corruption and decay. So what does this mean for children of God? What this means is that God's children can reverse moral corruption. How do we do that? We do that in verse 13. Look at it. By putting to death the deeds of the body. Putting to death the deeds of the body. I I, I like that that phrase, putting to death. It's kind of gangster. And, and, And I like it because really what it means is you execute the flesh. You execute the moral corrupted body that's still part of you. Which is to say that if you are a child of God, God is still working on you. You're still not perfect. You still got a long way to go till he calls you home or until he comes back. So we got to put things to death. So how does the Christian do that? How do we put things to death? It's by removing anything that gets in the way of our relationship with God. That might look like removing that TV or that, that um, computer that leads you toward pornography. Maybe it's, it's that friend that encourage you, encourages you to cheat on a test. Maybe, maybe it's, it's being around a lot of self-righteous people that look down on other people because they don't live their Christian life the same way that all of you do. Maybe that's what God is calling you to do. But that's the way that you put things to death. You remove it, you take it away, and you flee from it. You put the flesh to death. You put the flesh to death is how you begin to experience God's abundant life, free from frustration and moral corruption. But if you're like me, you know, and I know that you know, that temptation is really, really hard. It's interesting to me how many times when we try to do the right thing, it seems like the moment you resolve in your mind, I'm going to do what God is calling me to do, is the moment that a temptation pops up and you're just like, oh, I don't know what to do. <laughs> and many times when we fall prey to that over time, we begin to question ourselves, man, are we really children of God? Can I call myself a child of God? So at that moment, what is the evidence that you are a child of God? And in verse 14, we'll see that the Holy Spirit prompts God's children to depend on God, not to compensate for God. In other words, the Holy Spirit prompts you to depend on God and not try to overwork yourself to try to gain some sort of acceptance from God if you are a child of God. So I want to look at verse 14. In Verse 14, it reads this. It says, "For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So the Holy Spirit, in this context, by implication, prompts God's children um, to trust in Jesus Christ. How do I know that? I know that because of passages like John 6 or John three verse six, it says this, and this is Jesus' words. It says So the Holy Spirit, and here in this context we see, brings people to be child of God or causes people to become children of God. This is why in verse 14 he says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And the first instance of that where you become a child of God is when the Spirit leads you to believe in Jesus Christ. The Spirit influences you, teaches you to believe in Jesus Christ for the first time. And if this is your first time here at the brook and you're like, man, I've never trusted Christ, I want to let you know it's the Holy Spirit who drew you here today. It's the Holy Spirit who's calling you to Jesus Christ. So God the Holy Spirit influences people To place their faith in Jesus. But notice this text says that phrase sons of God. You see that? Sons of God is an all inclusive term to refer to both women and men. So it's not just for men. In that day, that was an all-inclusive term. So anyone, no matter what your socioeconomic status is, no matter what gender you are, no matter what you've been through, the Holy Spirit draws anyone that he desires to come to Jesus Christ. But the Holy Spirit also prompts God's children to depend on God the Father when you are tempted to disobey God in this life. So the ministry of the Holy Spirit is not only one where he brings you to faith in Jesus Christ, influences you to place faith in Jesus. The Holy Spirit also influences you to depend on God further and further throughout this life. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And this is why I'm gonna read verse 15. He says this, for you did not receive the Spirit uh, the, the received the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry Abba Father why does he say you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back to fear fear of what what were these first century Christians dealing with what these Christians were dealing with was this idea that they needed to prove themselves to be God's children, that they needed to work for God's approval. And that's really fearful, because if if you have to work for your salvation, or you have to work in order for you to be a child of God, and from one moment to another, you could be a child of God, and the next moment, you won't be a child of God, and that's really fearful. Because Jesus could come back anytime, time, or, or we could die at any moment. So this is what they were struggling with. Like, man, are we God's children? Our, our, is our eternal security, do we have eternal security? That's what first century Christians were dealing with. So he says that God didn't give us a spirit of slavery to fall back into that fear, where we need to work for our salvation. That's actually wrong, biblically. Here, what he's saying is, in verse 15, you have received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Which is to say that the moment that you became a a Jesus follower is the moment that you became adopted into God's family. Which is also to say that before, you were not a child of God. You were actually an enemy to God. Not everybody is a child of God. And I know you'll see that on Instagram posts and Facebook posts. But not everybody that claims it is it. You know what I'm saying? Here in this text it says that it's by the spirit of adoption that we call God Abba, Father. So here, what he's saying through Abba is that God no longer becomes our enemy but becomes again our father and i like this because he says we we have received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry abba father it's this idea of deep dependence like Father, I need you. There's so much temptation around me. Man, I'm so inclined to lust. I'm so inclined to lie. I'm so inclined to just do my own thing. I need you, Daddy. It's that term, Abba. I need you, Daddy. Help me. The text says we cry, Abba. So what do we do with that? Well, the Holy Spirit prompts us to come to Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit also prompts us to continue to depend on Jesus Christ. So in those moments where we feel like we're struggling with sin, we're struggling to obey what God is calling us to do, God is prompting us to do in the midst of disobedience or when we're tempted to disobey, obey the Spirit's influence and cry out to God. Say, God, help me. I need your help right now. It's difficult for me to love this person. It's difficult for me to stop lying on my time card. It's difficult for me to put the, the camera down. It's difficult for me to lie, to stop lying on my taxes. Father, I need you. Daddy, I need you. I told this the first service many of us haven't had a good father figure. Some of us didn't even grow up with our father in this service. So it's difficult for you to relate to God as your father because you equate your biological father with your heavenly father. And sometimes we bring that baggage into our relationship with God. And I want to let you know you're in good company. It's it's normal. But here's the thing, that God has the copyright on fatherhood. Mm -hmm. Our biological fathers don't have the copyright on fatherhood. Our biological fathers actually fall short of that copyright, and that's why they need Jesus just like we do. So with that being said, we depend on God and we can be sure that God will help us because he is a father who helps. He doesn't abandon us or he's not absent when he's with the, when he calls us his children like many of our biological fathers so i want to encourage you if you are being prompted to cry out to the lord for help do it trust that god will help you because god the father is not like any father here on earth he's consistent a helper And if you find that prompting, it's because the Holy Spirit resides in you and you are a child of God. Yet there are many times as God's children that we grow weary against our fight against sin and we begin to ask ourselves, what's the point of staying in the fight? You ever been there? Maybe you killed that habit. Maybe you stopped eating the way that you shouldn't. Maybe you stopped looking at certain things that you shouldn't look. You stopped flirting um, with someone you know you shouldn't be flirting with and, 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 and you're just doing well but you just know that it's really, really hard to keep that up. And you're like, man, what is the point of all of this? I'm tired, I'm weary and honestly, this don't feel good. What do we do with that? Well, this brings us to our third evidence. The Holy Spirit positions God's children to inherit God's kingdom. And we see this in verse 16. In verse 16, it says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. See that? That we are children of God. The Holy Spirit gives us, in other words, the confidence we need To know that we are born again as we obey his leading. To bear witness means that the Holy Spirit impresses on our consciences, impresses on our minds that we are children of God. But how does this work? The way it works is by us cooperating with what the Holy Spirit is calling us to do. So the more that we cooperate with the Holy Spirit's um, planting of killing specific deeds that are harmful to us and the more that we obey his prompting to depend on God, the more the Holy Spirit impresses on our consciences that we are children of God. And this is good for us. So he positions us to be confident. But also the Holy Spirit positions us uh, to receive the physical kingdom of God even though we suffer. We see this in verse 16 and 17. He says that, the, that, that if we're children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Hold up right there. Why does he say heirs? That's kingdom-like language. I want to let you know that the good news that God has a kingdom. And his kingdom is not just the United States. God's kingdom reigns all over the earth. As a matter of fact, God's kingdom spans even the galaxy. And the Bible says that God actually names the stars by name. So if you're paying for that, to call it a star or something, you're wasting your money because God already named it. Because God is a king. And he has a glorious kingdom. And right now, Jesus Christ is on the throne, the second person of the Trinity, and he's reigning spiritually and directing us spiritually as the church. But there's a day when Jesus Christ will come back to earth and he will judge the earth, but he will also also allow us, those who are children of God, to reign with him over the earth. That's why the text says that we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, with Christ, that we get to share with God's um, reigning here on earth. We get to rule over the earth the way that God intended Adam and Eve to do it in the beginning. That gets me hype, y'all. But then he says, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So he gives a caveat. He says that we will share in the glory to come provided we suffer provided we suffer, which is to say that just because we are kings and queens spiritually doesn't mean that we don't look like carpenters now. You see, Jesus was a king. And I heard a preacher also say that he was also a carpenter who got his hands dirty and was, and was also mocked. Jesus was also a felon unjustly, but he was still a felon. They crucified him unjustly. He died. They put him in prison. They mocked him. He suffered, yet he is reigning in eternal glory right now as our king. So what does that mean for us right now? What that means for us right now is that while spiritually we are co-heirs with Christ and we are able to rule the earth as a reflection of how God rules the earth through us, we also, as we suffer, have the we'll have the guarantee that we will reign with Jesus Christ physically. But here's the thing: many who are not children of God are cool with the euphoria of God, cool with the glitz and glam, cool with the lights, cool with, you know looking godly in public. But the true test of our Christianity is when we suffer. As a matter of fact, Jesus often told his disciples, you will suffer. If anybody desires to come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. That's what he said. So as children of God, the true test that we are walking or that we are children of God is that we endure suffering in light of the positioning that we have in eternity. It's meaning that as we continue to focus on our positioning, as the Holy Spirit brings that to mind and to our our hearts, the more that we do that, the more that we are impressed. It's impressed on our consciences that we are children of God. I was thinking about this. There was a, there was a man named DJ Official. He was a DJ um, who really, really renowned DJ. He was a believer, did a lot of great things for the kingdom. And he, uh, just he, he had some sort of bone marrow cancer. And on the final days of his life, he tweeted this. I couldn't believe it. He said, I trust God more now than I ever did before. You see, the biggest threat to us walking with Christ is not the temptations that we face. You want to know what the biggest threat to us walking with Christ is? It's success. It's when everything's going all good. But see, when we suffer, we have no other hope but to remind ourselves of our position that we will inherit God's physical kingdom here on earth. And if there's something in your heart or in your mind that continues to lead you to hope in that, then you are a child of God. You might fail, but you are a child. So if these are the evidences, divine planting, a divine prompting, and a divine positioning, then what should we do right now? What difference does that make for us right now in the next hour? If you're here today and you're like, man, this is the first time that I I sense those things in my heart and in my mind, that's the Holy Spirit calling you to place your faith in Jesus If you know that you're a child of God and you're like, man, I have those evidences in my life. I just want to affirm you that you are a child of God according to God's word, but that's not good enough. What do we do with that? What we do with that is we submit to the Spirit's guidance. Submit. Let go of what you're doing disobeying God and submit I thought about this my wife and I we were on a vacation recently as we were on vacation we, we went out for a hike I didn't want to go on the hike to be honest I gained a couple pounds so I sensed the spirit of God leading me to go on this hike through this mountain I don't even like nature so like, I was like man I'm just going to go you know, I love my wife and I also love these people so we're going to go on this hike and it's going to be amazing. And I'm going to be a good sport about it. But, but, but it was interesting. As we were walking um, toward the trail, um, the family that we were with, they had this son. And the parents told this son, they, they said, hey, son, you can do whatever you want on this mountain as long as we're present and as long as you follow these guidelines. And one of these guidelines is that you don't run up and down the mountains. Capish?" Son said, "Capiche?" So we were on our way, and at one point, the son ends up doing what many of us would do, not that I would do, but many of you would do. He begins to run up and down the slope of this mountain and this is the smoky mountain. So he's running up and down, up and down and at one point as he's running, he kind of loses his footing and he, the gravity just pulls him and he's running so, so fast and then it was like a split second. There was a tree that was coming his way and the moment that he was about to smack that tree miraculously, you could ask my wife, she was there miraculously, he stretched out his arms and he stopped himself gently. It was crazy, y'all. The father and the mother run down to him, and tell him, son, why did you disobey us? And he was just ashamed. And as he's ashamed there, his parents begin to correct him and say, son, you can't do that. You can't do those things because this will put you in danger, son. You could have lost an arm. You could have banged your head. We would have been in the hospital. Son, you got to be smarter than that. But this is the cool thing. His parents told him, you know what? This session is still in at play. We're, we're still going to have a good time here on the hike. And it's all good. You could... You could still enjoy this landscape, yet the consequences of your disobedience are on you. And you can't do everything that we once told you to do. You were able to do. But the father, I remember him telling him, Son, I'm here with you, I'm present with you. We're not just going to abandon you because you make a mistake because you're ashamed, I'm with you. And we're going to have a good time. You're going to face the repercussions of your actions, but we're going we're gonna to overcome that. And we're going to have a good time. Like this story, if you place your trust in Jesus, your status as a child of God will never change the presence of the Holy Spirit living inside you will never change. But that doesn't mean that you won't face the consequences of your disobedience. Many of us here might be running down the slope of lust, down the slope of lying, down the slope of, of pride, down the slope of, of misjudging people, down the slope of not wanting to gather with the body of Christ because you say everybody's fake. You, I mean, you're running down the slope and you're about to hit a tree and face the consequences of your sin. And then others here are facing those consequences right now. I got good news for you today. That if you're hearing my voice today and if you read God's word, that's the Holy Spirit working on you to give you a new beginning, to restore you, to allow you to to accept and experience this abundant life that God has for you. But you gotta submit. You gotta submit. And what does that look like? Submitting looks like confessing your sin to God, crying out to God, God, my Father, I need your help. I did X, Y, and Z. It means believing that Jesus Christ died and resurrected for your sins. And submission looks like you obeying God and what he's calling you to do, taking actual tangible steps to overcome that disobedience that you have in your heart. If we do that, church family, we will experience the abundant life that God has for us now even as we suffer. And that's good news. And why can we say that? Because Jesus Christ, through his resurrection, purchased abundant life for us. So if we submit to Jesus, then we can overcome this world question on the floor is will you do it will you submit to what God is calling you to do let's pray father we stand before you Lord and the truth is all of us everyone in this building has deeds that we've done against you we've disobeyed you we've said things to our spouses, we've gotten short with people, gotten prideful, we're lustful. Lord, many of us are maybe just stuck in a rut where we're we're isolating ourselves because we're just ashamed of what we've done. Lord, I want to pray that today, Lord, you will remind people that if they have those promptings from your spirit, Lord, Lord, the work of the Spirit in their lives, Lord, I pray, Lord, that they would submit to the Spirit's work. And I pray that today, Lord, for those who may not know you, who are saying now this is the first time that they experience the Spirit's work in their life, I pray that today would be the day of salvation, the day that they place their faith in Jesus. God, I pray that you would restore us to life, to wholeness, Lord. I pray a blessing over Everybody listening through the airwaves. Lord, I pray that you would grant us abundant life now. and help us overcome these sins. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you guys know that we serve a God of new beginnings? Come on, don't let us stop there. How many of you guys know that because Jesus resurrected, we can be restored? I just want to remind you, it doesn't matter if you cursed two minutes ago. It doesn't matter what you thought seconds ago. If you believe that Jesus died for you and you submit to the Spirit's work, you have a new beginning. And I want to leave you with this blessing as we depart from this place. It's from Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26. It says this, Now may the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look on you with favor and give you Church family, God bless you. You are dismissed.